Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your questions, your hot takes, your observations, and ultimately your comments on tennis or anything else. Posted on the YouTube community tab over 24 hours ago, triple digit comments yet again, so much going on, an incredible stable of comments this week because there's so many storylines right now on and off the court, and you guys also did a great job of liking a couple of comments, a lot of comments with a lot of likes, which lets me know that those are the comments that I should be responding to. So thank you for that. Um, time of recording, I'm going to just timestamp this. Alex Dimonor is playing the final semifinal after midnight once again in Paris against Alex Dimonor. And Rublev is up 4-1. I think that's a two-break lead for Rublev in that deciding set. So looks like our semifinals will be set soon. And uh, before I get into the comments, let me just do a quick little rundown. I'll, I'll be... I'll be rapid fire here, give you some thoughts on some of the matches this week that have led us to these Paris semifinals. Uh, let's start with Tsitsipas, who out of everybody level-wise has probably been the most impressive. He beats Felix in his first match in straight sets. He beats Zverev in straight sets in the second round. Beat Hachinov earlier today. That's a match that I got to see pretty much in full. And uh, it was just very clear early on in the week that the backhand was humming, that it was going to the best of its ability. He's creating on it well. The down-the-line backhand is working. And in general, I think that one-hander, and especially the return, it tends to perform better on slower, lower-bouncing hardcore, which is something that I, I probably should have weighted more heavily in the preview, you know, especially looking at a matchup uh, like Felix and Zverev, two really like high velocity servers against Tsitsipas on a hard court. You know, traditionally that's been difficult for Stefanos, especially this year. Uh, but man, Rotterdam truly is playing slow. And I think the lower contact point also helps him stabilize on that backhand return, where when it gets kind of above chest high, that's where he has a lot of trouble controlling uh, the backhand return, and that shot can can really go off on him. I loved what he was doing even with the slice against Hachinov. Against Karen, a lot of it was backhand slice cross court and then find ways off of that to go hard into his forehand wing. And uh, that was a, a really awesome combination. Hachinov was uh, was really outclassed in this match. He, he looked like he was pressing because he was afraid of Tsitsipas' forehand potency. 
and, you know, Hachinov, where his strength is consistency. You could see that he was asking himself uh, to kind of do a little bit too much. And he lost that consistency because Tsitsipas was so threatening offensively. And that's what that's what Tsitsipas can do to you. That forehand is so scary that when you hit a backhand cross court and you're afraid of the runaround, you miss more. Or, you know, when you are absorbing Tsitsipas's forehand cross court and you don't want to go back cross court in a Tsitsipas's forehand and you change direction to try to get to the backhand and that's tougher to time and you miss. Those are the kinds of things that that happen. So Tsitsipas, I think he can win the tournament. Um, right now, I actually, I think I favor him because I think he's playing the best. Dimitrov, no surprise here, right? He's balling. That was one thing that I actually did get right in the preview, which was not a, you know, not not great in the predictions side of things. But uh, I felt like it was 50-50 against Medvedev, and it certainly was 50-50. And Dimitrov comes through, third set tiebreak, very similar to Medvedev's loss against Dimonor last year in Paris, where the finishing was the main difference here. When Dimitrov, and we saw this in a couple of pressure situations, when Dimitrov was hanging back, and playing extended baseline rallies. Look, he was he was tough, don't get me wrong, and boy, they they played one of those match points were was a great example of this. It was brilliant to watch uh just the the rally tolerance by both of them. But ultimately, when the match was being played in that vein, Medvedev was probably a little bit better than Dimitrov. He won the 9 plus rally category statistically, but the difference was Dimitrov was clinical at net and was coming forward quite a bit, and he had a way to finish against Medvedev's speed on these slow Rotterdam courts, and Medvedev really struggled to finish against Dimitrov's speed. It's exactly what we were talking about one year ago today when Dimonor played Medvedev and rushed the net and made it really tough to finish against him. Um, and yeah, it was just like, it was a matter of converting on your opportunities to attack. And when you're a great volleyer, you convert. And when you're not against a speedy player, you don't. So I thought that was the biggest difference. Um, what else? So then Dimitrov beat Hercoc. Hercoc beat Korda. I thought Hubie... I thought Hubie was going to be injured this week. Like I, I saw that second set in Basel, and it just looked like he hurt his leg, and that was mainly why I uh, Hercoc kind of surprised me because, and I'm glad because he was healthy enough to go on a run and uh, came up just short. That was the early match, tough with the time zone. I, I didn't watch that match. Uh, Djokovic Runa, that was something. I thought, uh, you know, neither player had good legs in this match. Djokovic has been dealing with something, some sort of physical ailment. The performance against Greekspor was not his best. He kind of scraps and claws his way through that one and comes away with the victory. Uh, same thing here, but Runa, again, just physically loses it. I mean, again, both of them were struggling. So I, I don't think it was the highest quality Djokovic Runa match that we've seen. In fact, I would I would say um it was maybe the worst. But Djokovic is way better at fighting through this stuff. 
he's okay with suffering. He pushes through. He stays as consistent as he can. He tries to maintain his decision-making. And he can outlast and just push through where Runa, when he starts to feel physical pain, he just uh, he just goes to low percentage point shortening. And sometimes it works because he's so talented, but sometimes it doesn't. So I saw Djokovic just making him move, letting him overplay out of corners. Runa, it felt like in the third set, was missing every other running forehand because he was going so big out of his forehand corner. And then there were also a lot of points where it felt like Djokovic just, was just waiting for Runa to hit that forced approach shot, where eventually when the rally passed, you know, seven, eight balls, Runa would just kind of come in on a shot where it wasn't really there and Novak would make the pass. So I saw that a lot as well. And I also saw this kind of residual effect where when there was a long rally, you could just, you knew that the next couple points for Holger, he was just going to trigger pull. And on serve, he was probably going to serve in volley. If the ball was on his forehand, he was probably going to go for broke. So that's kind of how it was. And that was, that was the difference. And that's why, you know, Djokovic, one of the worst serving matches of Novak's season, a little bit better in the third set, but it was one of the worst serving matches of Djokovic's season. He was able to come through it. And Runa served well, by the way. That was a positive for Holger. So I kind of feel the same way about Novak that uh, same way I felt coming into the preview that I just don't think he is 100% because it's just not a great calendar spot for him. I know traditionally he's played great in Paris, but I, I don't think this is traditional anymore. This is an older Novak Djokovic and it's a lot different from last year. And he's been dealing with something as well. So... Uh, it's tough to say what's going to happen here because obviously he matches up great with Rublev, who's up 5-1 right now in the third set against Dimonor. And he matches up great with Rublev. So I don't know if Andre is going to beat him, but I would say if there's a spot for Rublev to get the better of Novak, if it's going to happen, this is the spot. Um, it is this version of Djokovic who's played a bunch of three setters in a row and... Yeah, just, just looks a little bit less than 100%. So this is where Rublev would get him. And uh, yeah, I, I I think I like Tsitsipas right now to win the title. So we'll see what happens. All right, let's get into questions. How long did I go? 9.50. Okay, I'll take it. First one is from Roman, who is a member. Try to give uh, some priority to members in the mailbags. And you can become a member. Support the channel by hitting the join button for a uh, $2 per month contribution under no obligation to do so, but it is appreciated. All right. Hey, Gil, do you see a parallel between Nadal's and Alcaraz's physical play style and their usual less than ideal year-end form? Obviously, the sample size with Alcaraz is not huge, but I would still like to hear your opinion. Yeah, definitely small sample size with Alcaraz, and it remains to be seen if we're going to be looking at a situation similar to Nadal where... Boy, the, the results, indoor hardcourt after the U.S. Open, huge difference between his dominance and success that part of year compared to the other 10 months of the season or nine months of the season. So we'll see if we get that with Alcaraz. I mean, in a way, I see some similarities there, and in a way, I don't. Do I think that young Nadal did a lot more running and grinding 
than young Alcaraz does? Yes. I mean, at the end of the day, their play styles are not apples to apples by any means. But the similarities that I do see is, you know, highly explosive athletes who carry a lot of muscle on their bodies and, you know, tend to kind of go all out all the time. I don't know if, if they're training uh, has a similar level of intensity. Obviously, Rafa was always known for the intensity he brought to the practice court, which is something that is probably lost on a lot of people. I mean, if you look at the way, I don't know, most players practice and then you watch Nadal practice, you begin to realize how much harder it is on Rafa's body just to not only play a match, but train. And uh, I don't know where Alcaraz would fall on on that spectrum exactly. I don't think he would fall all the way on the Nadal side of things, believe it or not. But certainly, you know, Alcaraz is is banged up and dealing with some wear and tear. Not only did we have the withdrawal last week from from Basel, but we also had his comments coming into the week before he ever played Roman Safulin in the first round. And those comments stated that uh, he probably isn't 100% and that he's feeling the effects of the long season. And then after the match, he reiterated the fact that he feels tired and he feels some pain and that he needs to figure out with his team a way that in the future he can avoid feeling this way at this time of year so that he can be competitive from start to finish over the course of the season. I also want to add this to this discussion. There are some aspects of play style that that have nothing to do with physicality that would make it so that Nadal and Alcaraz uh, both could have certain struggles on indoor hard courts and Paris-Bercy in particular. Paris-Bercy, and I'd love to see the data on this, it might be one of the lowest bouncing hard courts on tour. It certainly looks that way to me. And obviously for Nadal, you had that heavy topspin forehand where he wants that ball to kick up to provide the maximum effectiveness, especially when he's trading and defending. And he just doesn't get that in Paris. Not the Bercy kind. Certainly gets it in the other Paris. Um, for Alcaraz, like, what did we see in the Safulin match? One of the major things we saw was Alcaraz's kick serve was getting handled. It was completely ineffective. Now, Safulin... He's a really good on-the-rise player. He takes that ball hard early and, and was rushing Alcaraz, but Carlitos was getting attacked off of, uh, off of his second serve constantly, and that's because his kick serve just wasn't really doing the trick. In Bear C, the ideal second serve, it's got a little more speed to it, and it's probably got more slice than it has kick. That's a better second serve on these low-bouncing courts Alcaraz doesn't hit that serve. He hits that heavy kick serve. So that's just one example of, you know, where the height of bounce thing can factor in. Not to mention, and here's a big similarity similarity between Nadal and Alcaraz. Where do they lag behind their peers? Serve potency. Serve effectiveness. That's where they lag behind their peers. And indoors, you pay a bigger price for that because... Those who do use the serve as a weapon, those who are able to do that at the highest level, they're going to be able to execute that and deploy that to the max when they are indoors, when they're not battling elements 
and their precision is 5% better, and their toss is 5% more consistent. That's where they're going to you know, be hitting their spots and serving at a even higher percentage. And Alcaraz and Nadal, while their rivals are enjoying that benefit, they don't have the serves that allow them to enjoy that kind of thing. So there's a lot of factors here. And I'll leave it at that. Next question from Damiano. What are your thoughts on the Paris Bercy schedule? I think it's absurd to experience situations where a player finishes his late match in late night and then is supposed to play in the next afternoon, like Sinner, for example. For me, it's just not right. I understand that it's important to maintain a schedule, but in cases like this, you should have some flexibility to make at least some obvious changes. Well, I agree with you, Damiano. I, I fully agree with you. But I, I don't think the problem is... In the case of Sinner, okay, which I didn't talk about off the top, I probably should have. It's one of the big things that happened this week that I find so interesting. Sinner withdraws because he's like, this scheduling just doesn't work for me, and I'm going to have to withdraw due to fatigue. Maybe last week, you know, going, winning a title and obviously then playing the, the full week came into play here. Maybe that was part of it. But he finishes his match around 2 in the morning. A couple hours later, he gets to sleep, so between 4 and 5 in the morning, and he has less than 12 hours from that point to recover and, and play his next scheduled match, which would have been against Alex Dimonor. And a lot of people were up in arms, like, ah, how could you not schedule him the night session? Well... I don't think that's the problem here because if you went by that logic, the same player would be scheduled for the night session the entire week in Paris because time and time again, night after night after night after night, they're finishing past midnight. Yeah, maybe it's not past 2 a.m. every single night. Maybe there were only two of those. The point is the way they scheduled out this center court with six matches every day on the center court in Paris— you're going to have super late finishes almost every time. So to expect that they are going to make up for that by scheduling whoever finished late at the night session, it's just going to create a, a cycle that they do not want, which is to schedule the player, the same player, for every single night session. And that is by no means a defense of Paris Bercy. It is by no means a defense of their scheduling. It is just to say that the answer isn't putting a Band-Aid on the issue by scheduling Sinner at night. The solution is avoiding the issue in the first place and making sure that you are not having these late finishes every single night by trying to schedule six matches in one day on one court. And the, you know, the issue stems from, I, I think, the fact that the second court in Paris is very small and they can't sell a lot of tickets. And I think probably because of that, they try to really avoid playing matches on that second court after the first couple of days of the event. But I mean, I I I just don't know what they what they do currently. It's wrong. The majors have an excuse, even at these majors, particularly the U.S. Open, when play has gone really really late. There has been some some disdain. And some complaints voiced by the players uh, that have suggested that that needs to change. And even even some media members I know, particularly Christopher Clary, New York Times, 
uh, sorry, formerly New York Times, uh, he, he's been on this horse for a while, on this train for a while, that tennis needs to fix the late finishes. For the majors, at least you have the argument, like, look, there's a day off. And I'll, I'll tell you what, that's a pretty good defense. It is. But in this format for Paris-Bercy, where you know the players are not going to be able to get a day off in between matches, you cannot hold a fair event with this scheduling. You cannot. Ultimately, what's going to happen, if nothing changes, is we're going to continue to see outcomes decided by who gets more favorable scheduling and who doesn't. And that is not what we want. Next one from Ahmed. Hey, Gil, I'm interested to know the best serve returners you've ever seen. Maybe list them into the top three or five if you can. And which particular technique in their return you find most interesting for each of them. Thanks for the great content. Uh, whoops. You guys uh, you guys watching on YouTube were spoiled. You guys know what the next question is. Because um, I accidentally hit that button. Okay. Anyway, best returners I've seen. Hmm. I mean, look, it's been fascinating to see different styles emerge, right? And to see the benefits and the drawbacks of those styles. I think in a perfect world, you return like Novak Djokovic. You, you stay pretty close up to the baseline. You so you take time away and you cut off that wide angle so you're better positioned for the next shot. Uh, you do not have to chip slash block your return regardless of which wing it goes to unless you're trying to make a full stretch return in an emergency situation off of a great serve. But but you make it so that if you've anticipated the serve properly or if the player or if your opponent did not hit a great spot, you're able to drive the ball and get some pace on it. You're able to still cover uh, a lot of the service box and make it difficult for your opponent to find aces. You're able to make a high percentage of returns in play. Like Djokovic checks every box for what you want in a first serve return. Period. Um, and I, I feel like that's that's kind of the ideal. And I'm telling you, I, I do think, I'm curious to see how this develops and how the numbers pl uh, play out, but I do see a lot of Yannick Sinner and Djokovic's uh, a lot of a lot of Novak Djokovic and Yannick Sinner's return. That's the one I was going for. Uh, but you know, as we've also seen, there are other ways to get this done. And I think Nadal deserves a tip of the cap, certainly because the way he, especially on clay, the way he's been able to use his weight of shot off of his regular ground strokes and translate that into a return of serve by standing far back and kind of use the high heavy ball as a neutralizing return from a deep position, or in the case of the second serve return, just use the brute strength of your ground stroke power as a way, and I think Dominic Team did this extremely well off the second return, as a way to be offensive off the return from far back. I think that has proven to be, in its own way, very, very effective. Daniil Medvedev, I think, also has earned a shout in this conversation. Now, granted, players have figured out a way to take advantage and attack Medvedev's 
return style. But if you're talking about purely returns in play, Daniil Medvedev is probably one of the hardest players in the history of tennis to get a free point off of, an ace or a service winner. I'll also shout out, um, I'll shout out Andy Murray, incredibly precise return of serve, um, fantastic off the second serve return on the backhand side, probably the best inside out backhand return and down the line backhand return um, that I've ever seen. And then Andre Agassi, look, this is mostly YouTube, not me analyzing the matches, but um, Agassi has some of the most incredibly uh, pacey and offensive returns of serve that I've ever seen because his hand-eye and his compact stroke production was that where you know he was able to take, take 120 mile per hour serves and seemingly um, send them back just as hard as they came. So that's my kind of it's my rundown. I know Jimmy Connors. Jimmy Connors also one of the great returns. Next one from user. Grigor is top 10 this year. Only the awful draws he got prevented that. Hey, I I respect I respect the take. I do. You know, you don't always gotta be dropping questions in these mailbags. You can give me a take. I'll I, I take those takes. And this right here, this is a take. Do I agree with that take? No, I I don't. I'm I'm not quite there. As much as I would tout and praise Dimitrov's level over the course of the last month, and as much as I would praise his consistency, his reliability, and you know, I, I think his his doggedness and kind of steadiness as a top 20 level player over the course of the full 2023 season. I would fall short of saying that this year, as a whole, Grigor Dimitrov has had a top 10 level. And what I would really kind of bring to you is his record against top 20 players, which for the year is 9-14. and 14. And let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. So more than half of those top 20 wins have come after the U.S. Open. Um... Now, I completely understand where you're coming from here. You are looking at Dimitrov's losses, and you're seeing a lot of losses to Djokovic, a lot of losses to Alcaraz, a lot of losses to Medvedev, that run of losses to Zverev. And that's why you're looking at it from a standpoint of, well, he's gotten terrible draws. But like in reality, what's happening here? He's just... He's been a lower seed. He's holding seed. And he's playing a top player. Like, that's how this works. Now, granted, has he has he probably gotten, like, again, those top-tier players a little bit more often than maybe you would on average? Where, like, I guess recently it's you would want to be in Casper Ruud's quarter in a hardcore event. Or like Tsitsipas when he has had parts of the year where he struggled. Or Runa when he's had parts of the year where he's struggled. And yeah, sure, maybe Dimitrov has not had the fortune of finding himself in those advantageous draw positions. 
But still, at the end of the day, what's going to happen more often than not is you are going to play a really good player come the third round, come the fourth round, come the quarterfinals. And with Dimitrov, for especially from the start of the year up until the U.S. Open, he just hasn't been able to win those matches. To me, not quite a top 10 player this year, but top 15, now we're talking. Next one from Jared. Please evaluate Roman Safulin's game style. Is he a Karatsev slash Basilishvili one-hit wonder? Could he make his way to Hachinov rublev medi status? What are his strengths and weaknesses? Thanks, Gil. Uh, 44 likes. The people want to know about Roman Safulin at this point. And he's earned it. I mean, what a year it's been for the 26-year-old Roman Safulin. He makes his first major quarterfinal at Wimbledon. He makes his first tour final in Chengdu. He gets his first top three win against Carlos Alcaraz here in Paris. And there have been other moments, like he almost beat Tommy Paul at the U.S. Open. He was up two sets to love in that match. Uh, he was balling out on the clay, too. That's when I first noticed him. And I I, I think I might have made him my dark horse, um, you know, maybe maybe Rome or, or Madrid. Because, yeah, I noticed, like, the, the tennis was really good from Safulin. And, you know, former number two in the world. A lot of injuries when he tried to make that transition from junior to full-on pro. A lot of injuries that held him back and stunted his growth. But the ball striking talent is, it's great. It's just phenomenal. Um, right now, it is kind of hard to say exactly. Like I'm still, I also, I still feel like I'm learning about him, you know, not, and I've watched him a ton, but in terms of trying to figure out what he's going to be the next, for the next five years where we'll likely see Safulin on tour, I still have a lot of like questions. And when I say questions, I mean like genuine sources of curiosity, stuff that I'm not quite sure about yet. Uh, but I'll say this. If I were to describe his his ceiling or, or what he wants to be as a player, it's Andre Rublev. It's Andre Rublev, undoubtedly. I think his forehand is pretty special. Safulin. He does a great job of taking the ball really, really early, hitting it very hard, and dictating with that forehand. And he's still, like Rublev, he threatens off the backhand as well. So he's a very suffocating baseliner. Uh, he's got compact stroke production, generates pace very well, um, and combines it with, again, takes it early, decent precision. He's, to me, a hyper-offensive player. And it's funny, there, there were some people, and some people who, who I trust and some people who I like who are describing him uh, as kind of like a solid, consistent type, and that's not at all the way I see Safulin. I see him as a hyper-aggressive offensive baseliner, very, very similar uh, in the vein of Andre Rublev. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. I don't think he's as consistent and as reliable, particularly on the forehand, but maybe even on the backhand as well, as Andre Rublev. I think he's more prone to be erratic on the forehand. Rublev and I think this is something that's probably misunderstood about Andre's game. Those who just 
blindly associate big power and aggression with errors or inconsistency. That's where you're wrong about Andre Rublev because he is super consistent. Um, so with Safulin, the concern is that he just doesn't have that consistency and he's also a little bit shorter than Rublev and doesn't have his serve. Doesn't have the, the elite serve. If you look at his serving numbers, they're pretty middle of the road. And that, unfortunately, is where I start to see a lot of similarities between him and the guys who, Jared, you mentioned to them in your comment, uh, Karatsev and Basilashvili. Who, you know, what, you look at those players, same thing. Basilashvili was the biggest hitter on tour. Needed to needed to play offense. Wasn't a very good athlete. You know, if you got him to play defense, he was in trouble. But he was the biggest hitter off the ground on tour, bar none. Something happened with that serve, though. That serve, it was it was not good. It was not good. And I think that is one of the things combined with the you know, sometimes just being error-prone off the ground, that did Basilashvili in. That's why he could never be consistent um, on a week-to-week -week basis. Karatsev, similar deal, you know. Now, I don't think his... I think he's a little bit more more backhand-centric, but Karatsev, yeah, like, I'm, I'm saying the same things. He's taking the ball really early. He's threatening off of both wings. He's hyper-aggressive off the ground, and he's got you know, brilliant ball striking capabilities to allow him to play that style. And he doesn't really want to defend very much um, if he doesn't have to. But he doesn't have the elite serve to give him that safety blanket underneath that play style. Uh, Sebastian Corda is another guy who I, I look at him in a similar vein. Hyper-aggressive offensive baseliner doesn't have the elite serve. Here's why I don't always love that profile. If you are a player who wants to constantly be attacking, who does not want to defend, it is so crucial that your serve is putting you in positions. First of all, you're probably not going to break serve as much as you want to if you're that kind of player because you have to defend when you're playing return games. But second, you want your serve to be constantly putting yourself in those offensive positions that you like to play from. So, bit of a bit of a digression or a, a tangent, um, but in that way, I do see some Karatsev and Basilashvili. Um, you know, hopefully, he's figured out the durability issues. It sounds like he's changed some things in terms of how he prepares for matches and how he recovers from matches. Uh, the backhand, you know, indoors, it's been consistent. It seems consistent, but he does kind of come across the body, which is is not. Not the technique that most of the more reliable backhands implement. Um, nerve management, still got to see how his nerve management is. I just haven't seen him in enough big spots to really make a determination on that. So that's all. That's all for now. From Brand Say, just like to know your opinion on the WTA finals as a whole. Also, thoughts on the concept of a different venue every year. I personally enjoy it, but it has to be thought out and planned out at least two years in advance. I'm a little biased because um, last year I was able to watch the finals in Fort Worth. 
This was an experience I never thought I'd be able to do, and I would like others to enjoy that feeling as well. Good for you, brands say. Um, yeah, like in a way, it's cool to go to different different communities. This was really, really apparent last year when a lot of the licenses were getting shuffled around because of COVID. Um, and, and you got some places, we got to see tennis in some places that you don't get to see tennis at the tour level in on a regular basis. And like one, one event that I'll never forget is Tallinn, Estonia, right? Tallinn, Estonia. You had Annette Contivate and Kaya Kanepi playing in Estonia and they came across like superstars. Like the crowds were unbelievable. And here I thought, how cool is this? You have Kaya Kanepi getting the treatment like she's a top five player in the world because these Estonians just can't wait for the opportunity to watch uh, watch these players live. And uh, yeah, like I get what you're saying that there is a benefit to just getting professional tennis in unconventional venues. Heck yeah, I feel you on that. That said, WTA Finals... You want to know my opinion on the WTA Finals as a whole? I don't know how I can mince my words here. And I'm not going to. I can't imagine this event going any worse. I can't imagine the WTA Finals being any worse than it is in 2023. You start to go down the list of what makes a tennis event good and you start to realize just how bad it is. How are the crowds? Start there. They built a 4,000-seat venue in Cancun. That is not a lot of seats. They aren't filling it. Uh, shout out to Eliza Westcote on Instagram, who gave a really good rundown of part of the reasons why they are not drawing a lot of fans. Cancun is a tourist destination. This is not a, you know, massive metropolitan area that is going to have a built-in local interest in tennis, such as, I don't know, Ostrava, like Ostrava Czech Republic. We know that you can go to Ostrava and you are going to have a local population that is going to support the event. Cancun, eh, it's a tourist destination. Well, if it's going to be a tourist destination, okay, cool. The WTA Finals is actually a big enough event where you can you can probably have a lot of people who are going to plan their trips to a great place like Cancun and make the WTA Finals as part of those plans. Well, not if you don't give them time to plan the travel. Not if you don't give them time. Nobody's going to plan a last-minute trip to Cancun. Um... And then you have the weather factor. So we talked about the crowd. Let's talk about the conditions. Double whammy on the conditions. We'll start with the weather. I'm watching Goff and Vondrosova on my screen right now. It's a joke. The weather's a joke. Absolute clown show. Mickey Mouse tennis because of these wins. I mean, the quality of tennis is absolutely in the tubes. It is terrible to watch. I know I'm coming across strong here. What do you want me to say? What do you want me to say? I'm just saying what I'm seeing. It is horrendous to watch. 
not to mention the rain. And here you might be saying, Gil, are you really criticizing a tournament because it's windy and rainy? Like, what the heck? Or are you criticizing the tour because it's windy and rainy? What the heck can they do about wind and rain? Well, I'm not a meteorologist, but I just did a little bit of research on Cancun in October. And what I found was that in October, and I know it's the first week of November, okay? But it's, again, it's it's right around this time of year where it is the rainiest time of year in Cancun. And it is so freaking rainy on average. In the month of October in Cancun, it rains on average 16 days out of the month. Literally rains half of the days of the month in October. And here we are in the first week of November. Usually when it's when it's rainy for a week, you think it's bad luck. I don't think this is bad luck. I'm pretty sure this is just what happens in Cancun. And this is why tourism in Cancun, like people don't go during, during this season. Like, it's not a popular time even to go to Cancun. Then you have the court. The court is terrible. The players right away, um, and I know it was kind of a meme uh, before the event that the court wasn't done and, you know, that they were going to have to, you know, they were still finishing building the court so much so that the players were literally on site in Cancun before the court was ready to be played on, which I've never heard of a tennis tournament where the players arrive and they can't actually play on the court yet. Um, now, I mean, obviously they were able to practice elsewhere. Um, and look, that was kind of a meme and it was funny, but my, my thoughts when that was going on were kind of like, all right, like this is funny, but like, let's give them a break. They're building a temporary court. This isn't unheard of. Uh, this has been done at a high level before Miami open is one example of when this has been done at a high level. So let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Turns out not only was the court again, completed late, which I don't think is a big deal. The court just isn't good. The players are complaining about the, the movement on the court, uh, which I can't really see on TV. Unless I actually played on the court for myself, I don't really understand how it feels to move on the court. What I can see just from watching it is that the bounce is unbelievably inconsistent. Sometimes it looks like they're hitting the greatest kick serve of all time. Other times it looks like they're playing at Wimbledon in 1972. And that has also made it extremely difficult for the players on top of the wind to actually play a decent level of tennis. So the WTA will say that this is just a temporary, uh, temporary solution. And they will say, look, we know it's not ideal this year, but don't criticize us because it's just a one-off thing where we're buying ourselves time to come to a long-term conclusion, which would go over so much better if we weren't on year four, on year four of figuring out what the hell to do with the WTA finals. In 2020, they couldn't pull the event together. Understandably, it was really tough in 2020 to get these things together. Now the ATP, they were in London, uh, and they were able to do it without fans, I, if I remember correctly. Uh, but the WTA, which had theirs in China, they weren't able to do it. Huge financial blow, but completely understandable. Okay, 2021, Guadalajara was awesome. Like, Guadalajara was great. 
The fans were great. The the local community actually supported the event very, very well. And like, if you remember what the reaction of Guadalajara was, that was a round of applause. That was like, wow, great job under difficult circumstances, pulling this together and making a good WTA finals uh, in 2022, you know, to try to, you know, same thing, I guess, buy time for a long-term solution. Then there was Fort Worth and it was, you know, no offense to Brand Say, but uh, it was not supported very well. The crowds were not good. It didn't feel, didn't feel big. Like this is supposed to be the premier event for the WTA tour and the premier moneymaker. And it just didn't feel big in Fort Worth. Um, and it was also too last minute. The players didn't know, you know, where it was going to be held, which was kind of a problem. It was like, okay, let's let's get it together here. Let's do better. And they've only done worse this year, you know? It, and that's why I say it's year four. And at this point, it's just a terrible, terrible look. Reports are that, you know, they were trying... John Wertheim has reported that, you know, the plan was to get to Saudi Arabia, you know, to get big money out of Saudi Arabia and, uh, you know, the that financial benefit. But ultimately, there were enough people who didn't want that, uh, who dissented to that uh, for, you know, you know, probably for uh, political slash sports washing slash... Um, I, I don't know what the timeline timeline was with, you know, obviously world events and when this was being discussed, but basically they had to scrap the, the Saudi Arabia thing. And it, it just seemed like they had no backup plan and, um, yeah, it's a mess. It's a mess. All right. Next one from Deborah. How disappointing will it be if Tsitsipas and Zverev never win a major? To me, it seems a lot more disappointing than anyone that played in the 2000s or 2010s eras. Hmm. I'll say this. As a journalist, it's really not my job to be disappointed about what happens or just as much as it's not my job to be happy about what happens. Uh, but I, I understand what you're asking and what you're getting at here, which is like, do they seem like more of a wasted opportunity or missed opportunity? And uh, yeah, I mean, in in a way, I think you are probably right. I mean, there's a couple of factors here. One is the the big three slash big four factor where, I don't know, like for David Nalbandian, you know, the excuse is quite obvious for, um, as it is for, for Burdich and Sanga and Nishikori and Raonic and Dimitrov, where their primes just kind of intersected with a, a very, you know, clearly full-powered trio of players who were going to dominate. So, because that happened, the expectation just wasn't there. Look, Tsitsipas and Zverev were in a generation, or are in a generation, where the expectation was a little bit different than that. You thought you're either competing with the big three in their 30s, or not only that, you're probably going to be in a situation where the big three are gone by the time you are in your prime. Not to mention, I've been on the record and I believe this, I think Tsitsipas and Zverev 
have a little bit more to their game, um, talent-wise, ability-wise, than um, than Nishikori, Raonic, Dimitrov, uh, Burdic, Sanga. I think that's true about all of them. I think Tsitsipas and Zverev have a little bit more. That said, they have done more with their opportunity, right? I mean, Zverev served for a major title. I don't think any of those players can 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 say that. And Tsitsipas has made two major finals. I'm trying to think if any of those players can say that. Uh, Sanga, Sanga won. Sang, I think Sanga was just just the one. Yeah. So, um, and then Burdich Wimbledon final, right? Anyway, yeah, in, in that sense, I see what you're saying. The other aspect of it is it does seem developmentally that Tsitsipas and Zverev have, you know, kind of flatlined from where they were as younger players. You can't definitively tell me that Tsitsipas is better today than he was in 2021. Um you can't definitively tell me that Zverev is better today than he was in 2019, 2018 even. And that is that there is a, a layer of disappointment to that, where it's when you were super youthful and you were seen as a young player, uh, you maybe didn't uh, maintain an upward developmental trajectory like perhaps you could have. And ultimately, that is, if they do not win a major, when it's all said and done, that will be what cost them. Because it would mean they were passed by, by Alcaraz and Sinner and Medvedev um, and Runa, potentially, or potentially players who are very, very young, who maybe aren't on our on our radar quite so much yet. Um, that's what it would mean that they were just passed by, that they never got good enough to do it because it was never going to be a sustainable plan for them to just not be not become better players and to just kind of wait out the guys who were currently at the top to just wait out Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. Just wait till they retire. They'll retire and I'll start winning majors. That was never going to be how it works because there was always going to be somebody else who was going to come up and play that elite level like Carlos Alcaraz um, certainly has and, and others will continue to do. That said, both of them have plenty of time to try to win that major and make that a moot question. Next one from Raffle. I'm just going to say, oh, Raphael, Raphael. There we go. I, I just wasn't reading it correctly. Okay. Hi, Gil. Why do you think online tennis fans are so against the idea of supporting someone without considering them the GOAT? It seems as though they consider anyone who doesn't support a GOAT uh, contender a hater. In association football, for example, people support teams that are three leagues from the top. Any thoughts on why tennis fans seem so unable to grasp the idea of liking other players? Yeah, I don't know to what extent this actually characterizes all tennis fans. Uh, but I, I understand what you're saying. Or maybe we were just in a unique era where the three most popular players in the world all had a case to be the greatest of all time. And I think it may have been a product of just that, the weirdness and uniqueness of that circumstance made it so that 
the goat stuff became a part of fandom. But what you're saying is true. Like, it shouldn't be a part of fandom. I mean, obviously, take it from a David Ferrer fan that what what attracted me to tennis players uh, when I was more likely to, like, when I was a fan um, who, who took rooting interests often uh, was not their ability to be great. It was my ability to connect with them. And in this case, it was how I connected with them as a player, not how I connected them uh, with them as a person. Now, that will differ from fan to fan, right? Some, some people will harbor connections with players because of their personalities or because of their backgrounds. It's not always play style. To me, that always makes a lot more sense. I will say, when I read this comment, it also reminded me um, of a Tiger Woods thing with me where, like, growing up especially, I always never understood why everybody just loves Tiger Woods. And I would, I would talk about that all the time with, like, my friends. And I'd be like, why do you guys root for Tiger? And their response would always be like, because uh, he's awesome. Like, or because uh, he's the best. Because he's sick. Because he wins. And I'm just like... I, I don't know. Like, I don't really like him. I don't really love the guy's personality. He's like a robot and he's not really that likable to me. So I was like never a huge Tiger Woods guy. And I don't know. The rest of the world in the U.S., I, I don't know how he's received in Europe, but in the U.S., like every golf fan's a Tiger fan. And I was always just like, why? Like, I get he's the best, but why? So that's what it reminded me of. Uh, next one from user. Gil, I have a question. Can a player who is qualified for the ATP final skip that because he just likes to have some rest or is he obliged to attend and he can only retire if he has an injury? And does the same rule apply for the two replacements? Thank you and keep up the good work. Interesting question, which a lot of people were interested in because 19 people like this. I've never considered this. Obviously, I've never seen or consider that this would happen because, you know, the rankings points and the prize money that come with the ATP finals is pretty darn attractive. You're not really going to find a player who's like, nah, I'm good. But um, I wasn't sure what the answer to this was, so I looked it up in the rule book and I found that, indeed, the ATP finals are mandatory, not just for the top eight, but also for the two alternates. They have to attend it. It is mandatory. Next one from Ron Robbie. Hi, Gil. Is Andre Rublev the fifth best player in the world right now? He's had a very successful and consistent year, reaching three major quarterfinals and one round of 16. In three out of the four majors, he had Djokovic in the quarterfinal. He also made two Masters finals, winning one of them, and a couple of 250-500 finals. With Sinner pretty much locked in for the fourth best player status, or at least among the top four, would you agree that Andre is fifth despite having a lower ceiling than players like Runa Zverev and maybe even Tsitsipas? And by the way, you spelled Zverev, Zverev. Were you intentionally spelling it the way John McEnroe says it? I think you may have been, in which case... I see what you did there. To me, there's no debate. No debate. Rublev has been the fifth best player in the world. He's locked that in. 
He's had more big moments than than Zverev. Um, he's had a more complete year than Zverev. He's certainly had more consistency than Holger Runa because because Holger uh, hasn't really built up a great resume outside of the clay uh, events. Um, and Tsitsipas, Tsitsipas only has one title, and it was a 250. Like, Rublev has not only been more consistent week to week, less upsets, but he's got bigger titles, um, and he's got a 1,000. So, no contest. Yeah, I think I think Rublev. It's one of the things that's really stood out to me about Rublev's year. It's the first time since 2020 that you can say this, that he's really really kind of been locked in as that fifth best player this year. Next one from Gabonini. Hey, Gil, love your content. Truly the best analysis on YouTube. Thank you. Appreciate those words. I was wondering if you thought that Yannick Sinner can now be considered S-tier from the back of the court like Medvedev and Zverev after winning the final on Sunday. I've never seen such precise ball striking from him, especially on the backhand, and the consistency was also pretty fantastic. Yeah, I totally I totally agree with you about your assessment. You know, I've never seen him hit the backhand down the line so often and so well. And, you know, one of the key things for for Sinner when he faces Medvedev is he just needs to match him for consistency, which he's usually not able to do. And in this in this match he was. So I don't know how I could answer this question no. Like how how could after watching him outduel Daniil Medvedev from the baseline? How could you not say that Sinner is is right there? I mean, you could say the sample size is too small. You could say it's not really enough, but I I think Sinner has shown me plenty enough, you know, from the back of the court to consider him S tier. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's actually some of the other parts of his game that uh, are the parts that he's still going to be working on. You know, the serve has made big strides, but he's still working on the serve. He's still working on the volleys, still figuring out ways to change things up, maybe with the slice, with drop shots, um, and the defense. And also physically. Like physically, there, there used to be a point in time where I just don't think he was fast enough, wasn't explosive enough moving side to side laterally uh to consider him an elite baseliner it's not about considering him it's just i don't think he was he was an elite baseliner just because uh the the legs weren't really there to support that despite the ball striking being there now he's got both now he's got the movement and he's got the ball striking so yeah absolutely uh second part of this question uh is curious about the zverev situation not really sure what's going on can you summarize what has happened and what your thoughts are on it yeah, sure. And then the next comment is also about Zverev and uh, what's happened. So I'll I'll partially, I'll talk about kind of what's happened and then we'll get to the next comment, which is a more pointed, pointed comment about the matter. Uh, so Zverev has been issued a penalty order of 450,000 euros uh, from the German legal system. Um, it's called a, a penalty order. A penalty order is assessed in attempt to avoid to avoid a trial. So there has not been a trial. There has only been a you know a, a charge, a charge brought to the court, and the court uh, then brought that penalty order 
what happens is if the person appeals, which Zverev is appealing, then there's a trial. Okay. So it's interesting. This I don't think this is a thing in the US court system. I had never heard of it, but basically you you deliver the fine and then if there's an appeal, then you have a trial. Okay. So um I guess that's the first thing. One very, very important thing to note. I think this is essential that this is understood. This is not Olya Sharipova. This is this is not the same ex-girlfriend uh, whose account was covered in the uh, in the Ben Rothenberg pieces in in Slate, and was were both of them in Slate? I forget now. But there was part one. There was part two. Uh, obviously, those allegations were the subject of an independent investigation, which was what's the word? hired, uh, commissioned, that's what I was looking for, commissioned by the ATP. Uh, and then it was found that there wasn't enough evidence to substantiate the claims. Um, so Zverev was, uh, went unpunished for, for those allegations, right? This is, this is a separate thing that should be made clear. The subject or the alleged victim here is Brenda Patea, another a uh, high-profile character, uh, you know, high-level influencer with a large follower following, um, and the the mother of Alexander Zverev's uh, child, or Zverev is the father of her child. I don't know if it matters which way you say it. Um, she is given she has given one interview. And she has withheld a lot of the details of the allegations for good reason. She basically said, you know, she doesn't want to go public with all of the specifics because if I do that, it will give Zverev's, uh, it would, it would give Zverev's legal team a blueprint where they know now exactly what to plan for and what to try to refute. So some of the details are still being withheld. We don't know the specifics. Um, but what she, what she did say in one of the interviews she gave, um, which was in the publication SZ, uh, was that essentially we're talking about, uh, choking that, that, and I, I guess I didn't give a trigger warning there for those easily triggered by detailed accounts of domestic abuse, but, um, skip ahead. If you don't want to hear this part, Zverev, uh, allegedly uh, put her up against the wall and and choked her to which she sustained injuries to the neck, uh, trouble breathing, trouble swallowing, and, and all of that. So those that's the details of the allegations. Um, Zverev has denied the allegations, denied the allegations wholeheartedly. He, he plans to appeal. Um, he said in his denial... We all know what this is about. That's what he said. And when I first read that quote, I'm like, wait, do we? Like, what are you, what are you referring to? Now I realize what he's talking about. There's a custody battle here. There's still a, an ongoing custody battle um, that, that is ongoing. Brenda Patea does, does not want... I, I'm, I'm going to be careful here. I'm going to tread lightly because I don't want to get any of this stuff wrong. But essentially, I'll leave it at that. There's a custody battle. 
And last, last I heard about the nature of the relationship, Zverev doesn't see his kid. That's the last I heard about it. That could be, you know, the situation maybe since then has changed, and I'm not aware of that. But that is last I checked what what the nature is, and um, yeah, we we have that in the background as well. Um, what else? What else? What else? I thought this passage was interesting. Um, the reported incident was in spring of 2020, which was a while ago. She didn't report it until October 2021 when the custody dispute was already underway. Um, I'm going to read now straight from the SZ article. Patea says it was a mixture of shame fear of Zverev's lawyers and concern for the child that previously stopped her from doing so, aka stopped her from reporting it earlier. The reason she wants to talk now is because it has become clear to her what a role model she is, especially for young women, especially as a mother. Quote, if you look at the statistics on domestic violence, it's very frightening. Um, okay, I'm going to leave it at that. And uh, let's get to the next comment. Again, it's it's at it's about Zverev, so we're not fully moving away from this topic. All right, from Sharon. On Zverev's legal trouble, to my knowledge, when Olya came out with her allegations in 2020, she did not take any legal action, and the ATP did nothing for a long time. The ATP eventually launched an investigation, which was inconclusive, so nothing came of it. For these new charges. The German legal system is involved, and since Zverev is disputing them, I read there will now be a trial. Yeah, all of your information in that top paragraph is correct, Sharon. Okay, the comment goes on to say, Will the new allegations and involvement of the German legal system force the ATP to take some sort of action? What's the ATP's current policy, if they have one, and what sort of punishment have other sports organizations given when players are accused of domestic abuse uh, or convicted for domestic abuse. Um, all right. Should I continue? No, let me let me stop the comment there and 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 answer that part. Uh, typically, the ATP's policy has been um, the ATP's policy has been you let the matter play out in the legal system. And then after it plays out in the legal system, then you determine if the player has violated the ATP code of conduct. The ATP code of conduct is as followed, and I quote, a player or related person that has at any time behaved in a matter, in a manner, I should say, severely damaging to the reputation of the sport may be deemed by virtue of such behavior to have engaged in conduct contrary to the integrity of the game of tennis. You would assume, you would, you would hope that if a player is convicted or found guilty of domestic abuse, that that is certainly in violation of the ATP code of conduct. Because um, in any world, that behavior and conduct uh, is contrary to the integrity of the game of tennis. Um, you know, they're independent contractors, but they are still subject to that code of conduct on and off the court, and they still represent the ATP in that way. Um, what's interesting about this is uh, we haven't really seen this tested. 
Nicholas Basilashvili, aforementioned earlier in this mailbag, but that was talking about his tennis. Uh, he was in the Georgian legal system for domestic violence charges. He was acquitted, so we didn't. We never got to see uh, what the ATP may have done had he been found guilty. Uh, Tiago Zaybach-Vilch, his case is ongoing, so we don't know what the ATP will do in that case. Uh, Nick Kyrgios, this was an interesting one w with Nick in Australia. You know, he pled guilty, but then the charge was eventually thrown out because the court deemed the incident was was low level uh, and that Kyrgios was unlikely to repeat his violation. So uh, I still, I'm still a little bit confused. But again, Kyrgios was not really charged in any severe way by the Australian legal system either. So we really haven't seen, you know, the, the ATP's kind of response. There's no precedent here. There's no precedent. What I expect for the ATP to, to do is to, you know, let this trial uh, run its course. I expect that if Zverev is not um, exonerated in some way, I, I expect that he, he will face... Uh, some sort of punishment from the ATP, um, because I would I would think that that's in violation of the ATP code of conduct. You also asked in this comment, what do other sports organizations do? Uh, Matthew Willis is uh, my recommended reading on this because he laid it out in detail uh, on his uh, on his Substack called The Racket. He doesn't write for it anymore, but you can still find it on Google. And if I remember, I'm going to link to it. If I remember. Um, look, a lot of leagues have things in place that make it so that they are not reliant on the legal system. There are a lot of issues with relying on the legal system as a league to, to try to, you know, make that the end-all be-all when it comes to uh, creating accountability uh, for domestic abuse amongst your your athletes. Um, you know, there are a lot of reasons why, as a crime, it is less likely to be reported. It is like it is less likely to be uh, actually, you know, convicted um, from the psychological nature of the crime, the nature of romantic relationships and the complications that, you know, just that dynamic can have. Uh, the fact that for the most part, this is a crime that happens in private behind closed doors. And in the case, you know, more specifically to tennis, the travel, you know, the fact that some of these things can happen in a hotel room in foreign countries. And it's like, Okay, what is the who is the authority that I'm actually supposed to go to here if I'm trying to take the the legal route in creating justice or consequences for for what has occurred? Last part of this comment is uh, the ATP also tries to promote him in all their social media content and commentators who often have talking points about significant events in a player's personal lives. Never bring it up either. So while all this occurs, he continues to perform well and gain new fans who likely have no idea what's happening behind the scenes. Doesn't seem right to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel you on this last one. I mean, I think as independent media, uh, there's definitely a, 
you know, a real, a real responsibility to provide the information. Now, if the reaction to that information is, I believe Alexander Zverev, or I'm just going to wait and give him the benefit of the doubt until the legal stuff is resolved. If that's the reaction of the information, then so be it. That's okay. Uh, but the information should at least be out there. When you're looking at commentators and, and you know, the ATP social media, it's tough because, you know, they, they have a product that they're trying to promote. And I'm not, I'm not like saying, all I'm saying is probably most organizations would do what the ATP is doing until they can't anymore, you know, until, um, what ultimately ends up happening, like they are going to probably just, just lean on, on the legal system to kind of just take care of this and let the legal system answer those difficult questions. Um, it would be nice. Uh, I would, I would hope the ATP does operate with some sort of sensitivity, whatever that looks like. Uh, especially with with the way they portray any kind of personality off court uh, driven Zverev content, I think it is at least appropriate to be careful and potentially put a moratorium on maybe some of the things that that you might ordinarily plan to do with another player. Maybe for now, until this is resolved, leave Zverev out of that stuff. Maybe, uh, but as long as he's playing. On the ATP tour, I do think it's a tough ask, maybe an unrealistic ask, uh, to to say that I don't know the social media accounts just ignores Zverev and and don't promote the product, which is ATP tennis, so long as that Zverev is participating in said tennis. I'm also sensitive to the idea that, you know, for some people, and this is the sad reality now with Zverev after two separate accusations, uh, the reality that some people are bothered to their core by watching Zverev play tennis, by watching Zverev be promoted. I get that as well. I'm sensitive to that as well. All right. Okay. Um, I've gone pretty long here. I'm considering wrapping up. Uh, this comment got 16 likes and it's a quick fun one. So we'll We'll end on this from Fernando. Hey, Gil, I miss Federer. Could you bring him back, please? Who has been blessed with more pure talent, Federer or Alcaraz? Hmm. Uh, I would say, uh, no, I can't bring him back, unfortunately. I can, I can maybe bring him back as far as him coming on the show to do an interview. Uh, maybe, maybe one day... I can bring him back on the show. Maybe. But I can't bring him back on the tennis courts. More talent, Federer or Alcaraz? Talent's a funny thing, huh? Tough to define. But, you know, Alcaraz um, is the fastest player, potentially the fastest player I've ever seen. I think he's been blessed with better, like, athletic genetics. But as far as technical, technical skill set, talent. Uh, still Federer. Federer is still a better magician. I know Alcaraz has great hands. He has great feel. He has great touch. But if you look at, uh, <coughs> excuse me, if you look at, 
you know, Federer's timing and his serve and his technique. Um, his, I still think, you know, the 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 shot making from Federer still. If you take the power out of the equation, which again comes down somewhat to like Alcaraz's just fat twitch athleticism, if you take the power out of the equation, Federer's still a better shot maker. Now, Alcaraz, the only area of shot making where Alcaraz probably has Federer beat is the just the forehand pace, where Alcaraz will, you know, draw oohs and ahs because of just how fast he hits the ball. Federer doesn't do that much or didn't do that much, but other than that, Federer's still a better shot maker. Um, and also, something about Federer's footwork is still, to me, one of the more special things of, about the guy. Uh, just the the ease at which he moved around the court. And uh, to me, that's like, that's pure talent. You can't teach someone to move like Federer, in my opinion. Otherwise, we'd see more people who move like Federer. And we don't. And we don't. All right. Um if you didn't get your question answered in the mailbag, try again next week because, uh, yeah, you might have a chance next week because there were so many great comments this week. I could only get to some of them. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for everybody who did participate, and thank you for watching. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New New episodes of Fly on the Wallin' drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallin' wherever you get your podcasts.